You are listening to episode 66 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the beginning of the crossover double feature, double feature, in which Daredevil teams with Iron Man to face the Zodiac. Hello, one and all, and welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. This is episode 66, and I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. Here on this show, I read Daredevil comics, enjoy Daredevil comics, and talk about Daredevil comics. It's kind of a theme. And as we go into the crossover, double feature, double feature, it's the last series within the series that will be featured on DaredevilPodcast.com. Because, come August 23rd, this show will be part of the Two True Freaks Audio Empire, the greatest network of podcasts on the planet, and a whole new era for the show will begin. In the first leg here of the crossover double feature double feature, we will be looking at a crossover with Iron Man featuring the Zodiac Key, which I talked about last week. Before we get to that... One quick email from Professor Allen, he of the Quarter Bin Podcast, the Shortbox Showcase, and all the fine shows over at the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. And Professor Allen dropped an email with the subject line, Episode 55. The professor writes, J. Dave, I've thoroughly enjoyed the shows that you have been putting out since your triumphant return to the podcast. Good stuff in the Daredevil 101 episodes have been especially strong and informative. The detailed research you put into each episode makes the show stand out. I enjoyed the discussion of the meanings of character names from the Battling Jack episode as an example. Just wanted to send you a brief note of encouragement as well as a thumbs up. Keep up the good work. Professor Allen, host the Quarter Bin Podcast, co-host Shortbox Showcase. And Alan, I always appreciate words of encouragement, especially from somebody who does great shows like yourself. And you can call it detailed research. I call it anal retentive and nerdy to the next level. But I'm glad you enjoyed the names, for example. That was something I enjoy a lot, especially when it works out in the way that it worked out with that Battle and Jack episode where the names really do fit the roles of the characters. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes you come up short. But I definitely, definitely appreciate your encouragement. And everybody should go check out the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. That is the set of shows that Alan does with his daughter, Emily Middleton, and a bevy of great guests. And yes, for those wondering, he is a real professor. But since I'm short on time this week in terms of recording, I'm going to move us into the next leg here. I'm going to play a quick promo, which is appropriate to the subject matter this week. We're going to play a promo for the Invincible Ironcast. See, it's Iron Man, Invincible. You get it. You get it. So you enjoy the promo, and when we come back, we head to Tony Stark Country for the first leg of our double feature, double feature. Hey, kids. Do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition. And see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. 
Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. The Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition on iTunes or at InvincibleIronCast.Podbean.com. Okay, we are back, and it's time to begin our double feature, double feature. Last week, we saw the Zodiac, a cabal of criminals that used the astrological theme as they invaded New York, and we also saw a ton of smaller storylines get folded into that. At the heart of the whole Zodiac matter is one object, the Zodiac Key, an onk-shaped piece of metal with all kinds of powers which are undefined. Basically, the power of the Zodiac Key is whatever the story needs to be destructive. As you recall, Daredevil was the primary force in defeating the Zodiac last week and freeing the Avengers, but the story of the Zodiac Key isn't over. So following that, we now enter the world of Iron Man. And to put this up front as a form of full disclosure, Iron Man, for me, has always occupied an odd spot. He was a character that I generally liked, primarily in a group setting, but hadn't devoted a whole lot of time to his solo adventures. Now, recently I've done some Iron Man reading, of course, to bone up for this particular episode, but also for my own entertainment, and that reading included Armor Wars, one of the most well-known, well-regarded Iron Man stories of all time. So I've got a bit of a clear picture of him at the moment. In a way that I didn't before, mostly before, my real definition of Iron Man, at least in terms of my interest being piqued and actually paying attention, was based a little bit on Robert Downey Jr.'s version in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But that wasn't completely Iron Man, that wasn't the soul of the character that we saw first appear in Tales of Suspense number 39. Now, the original origin and the more updated version in both the movie and more recent comics share a basic template... He is a millionaire genius playboy who gets injured by shrapnel, taken hostage, and forced to build weapons, and builds a suit of armor to protect himself. In the original origin, this happened in Vietnam, and Stark was captured by a warlord named Wong Chu. I say that to say this, if you think about the setting of the original Iron Man stories, you kind of have the ultimate Cold War superhero. A perfect analog for the US versus communism and all of that jazz. Generally, Iron Man was a sci-fi spy story. You saw him going up against communist spies, industrial espionage, but the concept was potent enough that you could also have him hanging out with the Avengers and fighting your general villains and threats to the world. So in doing my homework for this, I kind of became a lot more interested in Iron Man and Tony Stark, and specifically the era of the 60s and maybe early 70s which is kind of where we're jumping in now. We're kind of jumping into a storyline already in motion as we begin this week's issue. To give you a little bit of the backstory in a very general sense, Stark Industries was attacked by Mission Impossible ripoffs called the Espionage Elite, and they in turn were led by a villain called the Spymaster. While Spymaster managed to get away after blowing up portions of Stark Industries and trying to steal secrets and failing, the Espionage Elite were captured. However, in that showdown, S.H.I.E.L.D. liaison to Stark Industries and friend of Tony Stark, Jasper Sitwell, has been injured. So as the issue opens, Iron Man's just a little ticked. And the issue in question is Iron Man number 35, the March 1971 issue. It features a cover by Sal Buscema, and the cover shows Iron Man and Daredevil trapped in these large glass tubes as Nick Fury, you know, head of S.H.I.E.L.D., stands in front of them fighting the urge to reach for the floating onk-shaped key. The villain, the green-skinned Capricorn, is in the background watching, and Iron Man warns Nick Fury that if he touches that Zodiac key, he will become the most dangerous menace on Earth. Now, to complement this cover, this is a very busy cover. There's a lot fit into this relatively small image. However, Buscema, who is, of course, a master, doesn't let it get overcrowded. It toes the line, yes, 
but it dodges that pitfall. What it succeeds in doing is presenting the key elements of the story, but not tipping the hand too much. In other words, it entices us by making us curious as to why Nick Fury grabbing this key would be destructive and evil, while not telling us really how the situation began, which is kind of why we want to read the issue to see how we got to this point. As mentioned, this cover has speech balloons. Now, I've never had a great affinity for speech balloons on covers or an aversion. They can work well or they can go against it. It's a very risky proposition because the goal of a cover is to grab the reader in the most minimal time possible. You look at a cover, and yes, I know you can't judge a book by its cover, but at the same time, this is competing with other books on the stands in a visual medium. So the cover is a key component, but the cover's job is to grab you instantly. You're either in or you're out. You either buy the issue or leave it sitting on the rack. This particular cover succeeds in using that speech balloon to entice the reader. It's intriguing. It caught my attention. So I would say this cover is successful in the colors. Now, again, this is probably because of the digital presentation, but again, the colors really stand out here, even though they are, well, rather odd, to be honest with you. So inside this cover is a story entitled Revenge. It is written by the great Jerry Conway, penciled by Don Heck, inked by Mike Esposito, and lettered by Artie Simic. And you can find this presented in two, count them, two essentials. You have Essential Daredevil Volume 3 or Essential Iron Man Volume 3. Depending on which character you're following, Iron Man or Daredevil, of course, you know where I lean, you can actually pick this up in either one and then follow the further adventures of the character. I think it's a great deal. It's also presented in color in Marvel Masterworks Volume 165, which is Iron Man Volume 7, and presented digitally in Marvel Digital Unlimited, where it looks glorious. So, jumping into the story proper... We find Iron Man holding the injured body of Jasper Sitwell as he recalls the events of recent issues. He thinks of the sabotage of Stark Industries by the espionage elite and their leader, the Spymaster, who has escaped after a showdown last issue. And that showdown led to Jasper clinging to life and Tony Stark, secretly Iron Man, blaming himself for putting Jasper in that situation. Elsewhere, a woman named Whitney Frost learns of Sitwell's injuries from the morning paper and realizes the true depth of her feelings for the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. She dons a copper-colored metal mask, the trademark of Madam Mask, and swings out her window for some soul-searching. Meanwhile, Iron Man tries to question Spymaster's group of spies, all of whom are captured at the police station. And despite the fact that Spymaster ditched them, the espionage elite remain tight-lipped, infuriating the Golden Avenger, who begins to lose his cool. Luckily, there are stronger heads available at the police station, specifically Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil. Matt reaches out to calm Iron Man and reasons with him that if Iron Man gets swept up in the hate, he might do something that he would regret. Still angry, but conceding Matt's point, Iron Man storms out of the police station to continue his hunt for the Spy Master. We're going to take a break there and talk about what we've read so far. The story presents something we're going to see fairly often over the next few weeks. The illusion of picking right up, but actually moving into a very quick recap of the previous issue. This is a technique that it manages to engage the reader on page one, but then also welcome newer readers. So essentially, it's a double whammy. Continuing readers are brought back in and rewarded with picking right up as well as a refresh. New readers, and of course, this is a time when anybody could pick up a comic off of a newsstand, which doesn't happen now. But new readers are filled in and able to follow the story without seeking out a ton of back issues. Now, in this first page, we have Iron Man over the body of the injured Jasper Sitwell. And it immediately, very strongly, made me think of Spider-Man and the slain Gwen Stacy in Amazing Spider-Man number 121. 
It's a great composition, and of course the main irony is that Jerry Conway has written both issues. I talked a bit about the villain Spymaster. His look bothers me, and it's not so much the colors, because it's X-Men colors, it's blue and yellow, but it's, it's an oddly 90s design. He has a very cluttered face with a lot of accoutrements. There's just too much there, and the design just has no personality. It gives the character no room to emote, which basically causes me to disengage with that character right out of the gate. To add to that, the Espionage Elite are direct Mission Impossible ripoffs. I mean, the late Leonard Nimoy had a very distinctive, unmistakable face. So when you see Leonard Nimoy, damn it, you know it's Leonard Nimoy. Why is that important? Well, Leonard Nimoy was a cast member of the Mission Impossible TV series at this time. Nimoy played Paris. His comic book analog was called London. Do you see where I'm going? Now, this isn't something I put on Conway. Conway's coming into the book on this issue, taking over for Alan Brodsky. But it is very much in your face. However, I must compliment the characters for being professional. Spymaster recruits them and then ditches them in their time of need. That indicates to me that they realize that if they are caught, they will be disavowed. Again, another Mission Impossible trope. I wanted to talk a little bit about the character of Iron Man. As we kind of mentioned, he's very upset in blaming himself for the injuries of Sitwell. The post-Robert Downey Jr. era of Iron Man in the comics, you actually see him as a jerk, and this kind of started with the Ultimates. He's egotistical, he's a know-it-all, just outright obnoxious, but fun to watch. However, prior to that, and really at his inception, you actually find Tony Stark to be a decent, sympathetic person. He's flawed, yes. He definitely has an ego, but that ego can get dropped. It's a man who really is out to do the right thing and protect others and help others. He's a very caring individual, and as we see with Sitwell, the people that work under him aren't just employees. They're his family to an extent, and he will do anything he can to take care of them. So if Tony Stark in your head is is Robert Downey Jr., go ahead and clear that out for the next couple of weeks, because that's not the Tony Stark we're talking about. And I found that to be extremely refreshing on this reread, and really got me more curious about the character and wanting to follow up on Iron Man some more, which I'm going to do in my free time. Another character that caught my attention was Madame Mask, a.k.a. Whitney Frost. This is an incredibly cool character. And my reading of her was extremely narrow. I read her in an issue of Hawkeye, where she was just despicable. However, following her path, we find Whitney Frost was the daughter of Count Neferia, who was a well-known Marvel villain and kind of helped kill Thunderbird on his first outing with the X-Men. But Whitney inherited his role in the Magia, which is the Marvel Universe's organized crime cartel. And so she became the head of the Magia. And to tie that to Daredevil a little bit, Gladiator had gone off to work for the Magia after working with Masked Marauder. So in reality, he was already working for Whitney Frost, a.k.a. Madame Mask. At that time, she didn't wear the mask. She was just Whitney Frost. And if you look at Whitney Frost, as the irredeemable shag would say, she's so hot. However, this scene progresses, and suddenly you get an oh-crap moment. Looking here as she moves from uh, Whitney Frost into Madame Mask, she doesn't put the mask on. She takes her regular face off. So what she's wearing, apparently, is sort of the vanilla sky facial prosthetic. And that freaks me out a little because now I'm wondering, and it's hard to tell with static images, if she's talking and no lips are moving. That's a little freaky. Now to give you a little backstory on that, Mask was scarred in a plane crash and then she went to work for a villain known as Midas. He had a gold fetish. And she tried to get out of the whole villain thing. So we have a woman who was drafted into organized crime by family. Reluctantly, but she embraced it. She saw herself fall from grace, so to speak, and go through some trials, and now she's trying to at least stay out of the way. 
However, she's realizing that the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, Sitwell, who has been pursuing her, and they've had this odd Catwoman-Batman type of relationship, but she's realizing that she wants something more from him, and of course he's injured, so that may not be possible. Conway's managed to really intrigue me about this character, and he's crafting a character that is really reminiscent to me of Black Widow, primarily during the Daredevil and post-Daredevil era. And of course he used this exact emotional turmoil to a great end on Natasha, and while it would be easy to knock him for using the same concept, I think it's a compelling concept and it needed to be explored. And once Jerry Conway moved on from Iron Man, it made sense to latch that onto Natasha. But I found myself incredibly fascinated by Madame Mask. So in my personal reading, I do want to continue to read more about Madame Mask. So veering off into Iron Man territory has actually fascinated me for both the main character as well as his supporting cast. And this issue was the main hook, even though I'd read previous issues. Now, I mentioned knocking Spymaster's outfit because it has no room to emote, no personality. And you would think that Iron Man would have that problem. However, the design of Iron Man's armor, specifically his facial design, does make it possible for him to emote. Easily, in fact, without moving the static face. All the artist has to do is work with the angles a bit. That's part of the genius of the design and probably, possibly an accident, I'm not sure. But it works, and I dig it. Iron Man is a character that lives, even though he's within that suit of iron, which in the real world would have no personality, no anima. And speaking of the design, this version of the armor was the standard for a long, long time. Sure, there were tweaks here and there that didn't last, like adding a nose to the faceplate, eh, adding roller skates to it, but generally, this particular version of the armor held until the Silver Centurion armor in the 80s, with a few deviations into specialty armor, if you will, stealth armor, etc., and since the armor is on the table, and we are talking about Iron Man, I'd like to take this moment to talk tech. Becoming curious about Iron Man and how his armor works, I pulled out my old friend, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Per Ohatmu, the armor can go 70,000 feet in the air and plunge to 1,000 feet below sea level. If Iron Man's in an area without oxygen, he can hold enough air for 1.7 hours of breathing. The armor can go Mach 1.2, lift 2,200 pounds, and withstand a temperature of 15,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, unlike the movie in which we see Tony stepping into a big thing and being bolted into the costume, and that kind of spills over to more modern takes on the armor, this original armor was actually quite pliant, like a piece of clothing. So much so that it can actually be folded into a briefcase. Well, how does that work? Well, per Ohatmu, the armor is comprised of microscales. Small, small tiles like fine, fine, fine chainmail, which allows a lot of movement and, well, basically relaxation in the armor itself. Now, when a magnetic effector pattern is switched on, it causes those scales to become rigid in a pre-programmed fashion, much like Batman's cape in Batman Begins. It's a genius idea, not only because it allows a great way to hide the armor and a great way to activate it, but also because it allows the armor to dissipate the blows. The tiles spread them out, so instead of a fist going through the chest, it gets dissipated out and down. The physics of that would be fascinating, and I hope one day W. Blaine Dowler takes a look at that, if he hasn't already. With the helmet, you have these open eye slits, unlike what you see with the Robert Downey Jr. version. Now, there is a computer eye screen, but also inside there is a food dispenser and headphones so he can hear the outside world. The surface of the armor actually has several spots that are solar energy collectors. And of course, that round spot on his chest, well, that's not his heart, like in the movie. It's actually a tunable laser array. Long story short, that makes things go boom. 
Iron Man's gauntlets of course have the repulsor blasts in the palm, but looking at the thick bands at the edge of the glove, that actually has a mini ion generator and that goes through a focus ring before it hits that repulsor beam. And that thick band is also where the navigational computer is housed. The belt area has an oxygen supply as well as reserve power and the discs on the hips are not just for decoration, those are power pods. The boots, like the gloves, also have thick bands along the top. Well, that's fuel takes, also air intake, and what happens is the exhaust cables snake down to the bottom of the boot and out the bottom, allowing flight, almost like a jet. It's an incredibly great design, and, you know, we have Don Heck doing art here, and he's considered to be the co-creator of Iron Man. However, in an odd bit of irony, the original armor was not designed by Heck. Instead, it was designed by Jack Kirby, and that would be the bulky gray armor. And you would think with Don Heck's long association with Iron Man, including this particular issue, that, well, he must have designed the current version of the armor that we're seeing within Iron Man number 35. However, that's not true. We actually have here a Steve Ditko design, which builds off of those bulkier earlier designs by Kirby. Long story short, Don Heck has told many, many Iron Man stories and the important ones, such as the first Hawkeye, first Black Widow, but he did not design the Iron Man armor. So how is Heck's art working here? Well... We see Matt Murdock, our character, walk in for the first time, and he's on model. But I think my bias becomes clear when I think to myself, well, it looks good, but it's not Gene Colan. This looks like a good opportunity to jump back into the story and catch up. We catch up with Spymaster heading through an abandoned subway tunnel to a pre-arranged meeting, and that meeting is with the villain Capricorn, part of the Zodiac, that network of criminals across the U.S. and the world, each representing an individual astrological sign. While Capricorn is a bit ticked that the sabotage of Stark Industries didn't yield any of Stark's secrets, he says that, well, Spymaster has new orders. Spymaster is given a brand new target, and that target is the man without fear himself, Daredevil. At S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, Iron Man checks on Sitwell's condition and chats a bit with Nick Fury. In the course of the conversation, Fury decides to show Iron Man a recently recovered relic, the Ankh-shaped Zodiac Key. But as Fury is handling the key, it suddenly comes to life and starts shooting beams. Iron Man forms a magnetic field around the key, calming the artifact, and decides to take it back to Stark Industries to study its secrets. Elsewhere, Madame Mask runs into a familiar, red-attired man without fear, and they're essentially circling each other when trouble arrives. Spymaster, in an odd flying jet craft, captures both Daredevil and Madame Mask. Later at Stark Industries, Iron Man and scientist Kevin O'Brien are examining the Zodiac Key when Nick Fury shows up on site. Fury had hoped that Iron Man had figured out the key's secrets, but as it stands, it remains a mystery. However, Capricorn and his flying ship are arriving at Stark Industries in search of the key, and this means danger for both Iron Man, Nick Fury, and the world. Alright, we're going to pause there and talk a little bit more about this section of the story. First of all, Capricorn, he has goat horns. Remember that, they're goat horns, because the sign of Capricorn is the goat. Now, as we first see him, Spymaster's walking in, and it looks like Capricorn is doing his Zumba or something. I don't know what the deal is with the pose. And of course, Spymaster is given the task of hunting Daredevil, and for a moment, I'm like, why are we hunting Daredevil? That's random. And then it occurred to me, oh yeah, well, the Zodiac's still a little ticked about the whole New York thing, and Daredevil was the key element on that. So, of course, it's also easier to hunt Daredevil than, say, Thor, Norse God of Thunder. Now we finally get Heck drawing Daredevil and, well, it just looks plain. It's not bad, it's not standout, it's just plain. Which is kind of something I would say overall with Heck's art. I'm not a big Don Heck fan. Until we get to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters and then I kind of become more interested in Heck's art. The reason is that S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters is full of female hotties. I mean, it's ridiculous. Not 
trying to sound misogynist, but it's everywhere. They're all wearing these short skirts. They're all shapely. I mean, we look like we have a blonde, two brunettes, and a redhead. It looks like Austin Powers pad, not S.H.I.E.L.D. Let's be honest, S.H.I.E.L.D. is really the premier spy agency on the planet. And it's very possible that these are all very competent, very knowledgeable, very incredibly gifted individuals. But it's also equally possible that, well, maybe they were headhunted for specific other attributes. I mean, we are dealing with the 70s, and it is a spy thriller, so you've got to have a requisite shapely woman in there at this time frame. So maybe the interview process was uh, a little bit different than you might imagine. Now, kind of going back to the less enthusiastic version of Hexart, his Nick Fury is really clean-shaven. He's a little less grizzled. He seems a little too pretty. Nick Fury's never been a pretty, pretty man. He's rugged. And I have to point out a continuity goof. We have an editor's note that says S.H.I.E.L.D. got a hold of the Zodiac Key in Avengers number 72. Now, yes, Nick Fury was in that issue, so was the Zodiac Key, and that would normally be right, but we did see it last week in Avengers number 82. Here's the odd thing. In my opinion, Avengers number 82 is the outlier, because it makes more sense for S.H.I.E.L.D. to have possessed that in Avengers 72, since it piggybacked off of a Nick Fury story and featured Nick Fury infiltrating Zodiac. Now, also to call back to something earlier in the episode, I mentioned that Iron Man's armor works off of a magnetic field. Now, having done that research, it made me a little bit more open to accept the idea that Iron Man puts a magnetic field around the Zodiac Key. Now, I'm not convinced it would work that way in the real world, but also we are dealing with comic book science, and admittedly, I have no science degree. And it's hard for me to determine if Daredevil is flirting with Madame Mask or if he is trying to really help her. And this is such an abbreviated scene, it's ridiculous, and you can't tell because Spymaster finds Daredevil incredibly fast. How? I don't know. However, I do love the idea that Daredevil calls himself on a bad pun. He mentions as they're getting captured that, well, I'm in the dark, and then points out, man, that was a bad pun. I'm a fan of bad puns, and that was a great bad pun. And the fact that Daredevil can acknowledge it, even better. Now, moving back to Stark Industries and Tony and the key and all of that, we have Kevin O'Brien, who is helping Tony study the key. Kevin O'Brien is an Irish scientist who Tony met while trying to sift out a rat at an Ireland facility. Kevin was able to stand up to that, and based on his scientific prowess and his character, Tony had him brought to New York and promoted. And we get a really close look at the metal of the Zodiac Key. And, of course, they mention it's otherworldly. To me, it looks like Galactus's bathroom. It's cosmic, and there's kind of a mess going on there. And we have Nick Fury showing up. At this stage, you shouldn't be surprised that there's a Nick Fury skulking around in the corners. And apparently, Stark Industries, well, it's just not really a secure facility, is it? Fury just kind of rolls right in. But, snarky comments aside, right now, we're all concerned with the health of Daredevil and fate of Daredevil. So let's jump into the final segment and check back in with the Man Without Fear. On Capricorn's ship, Daredevil and Madame Mask are able to get out of their shackles, but find themselves still trapped by force fields. Below, in Stark Industries, Capricorn and company invade, taking Shellhead and Fury by surprise. There is a fight, and Capricorn and his forces are winning, but after taking his own beating, Kevin O'Brien grabs the Zodiac Key and begins firing bolts from it. These bolts actually end up taking out Iron Man and Nick Fury, as well as opening a rip in space. And a voice calls out, from the rip in space for Capricorn to take the key. The heroes are rounded up and put into the tubes from the cover, and the voice from the rip in time, yes, that sentence just happened, but the voice tells Capricorn to hand Fury the Zodiac key. And though Nick Fury fights the urge to grasp it, the issue ends with our favorite 
Super Spy clearly in the thrall of the Zodiac Key, and potential destruction awaits. Let me kind of start this stretch of notes by saying Daredevil is not faring all that well when he enters Iron Man's world. I mean, he's captured right out of the gate. However, a silver lining is he's stuck with Madame Mask, and he gets himself free only to be trapped by a force field. But you know, he still employs some skill. As mentioned, Stark Enterprises doesn't seem to be the most secure place on the planet. Nick Fury just rolls right in, and so does Capricorn and crew, and it's like the door is just open. Come on in, steal our trade secrets. Science is for everybody, even communists. To his credit, Conway manages to segue a fizzled spy plot into a pretty solid Zodiac story with a different tone. It's not a smooth transition, but there's no way it could be. So props to that, even though today we get the severe beating of an Irish scientist. Looking at Kevin's beating, it's comics code brutal. We're not talking about The Walking Dead, but it is a rough beatdown. And then Kevin feels the force, and as it turns out, he seems to have been pretty adept to that. As he starts grabbing the key, turns out he used to bullseye womp rats back home, and then he totally screws up. You know, Kevin may have failed here, but I guess you give him points for stepping up and trying to do the right thing, right? I mean, that counts for something. But when you bring the key in and Kevin blasts that, that's when the story gets really weird. We're no longer looking at industrial espionage, we're looking at a rip in space and time and this ethereal voice. Like it's poltergeist or something, you expect that lady to walk in and say, This house is clear. But before it gets too weird, we get everybody put in their tubes. And then we have this moment of doubt for Nick Fury that ends the issue, where he's trying to grab the key, and we don't even have Kirby Crackle when we get this cosmic stuff. We just get plain Crackle. Like it's watered-down Rice Krispies. We have Pop, we have Snap, but no Crackle. I know Don Heck has fans out there. I'm not a detractor, but I'm not really a fan. His art is just plain. It's serviceable, it tells the story, but there's no dynamicism to it. There's no technical defects, but it's just ho-hum. It's right in the middle, and frustratingly so. Let me talk a bit more about that as I go into my final verdict. For me, it was cool to step into Iron Man's world. It's a bit of an unexplored space for me. Now, my primary complaint and, well, compliment is that this issue serves as a setup, a good setup. To Conway's credit, again, we're tying a lot of things together. So when it results in a bit of a muddled transition, you understand. However, it still serves to get the story where it needs to be to be a compelling team-up. It just has to deal with a lot of moving parts to get everything teed up and ready to go. And overall, the issue really is a bunch of parts that never really quite come to a satisfying sum. We're pulling a lot of heavily established bits in, such as the Zodiac, the Zodiac Key, but the story never really fills in some of the knowledge gaps. Conway will make good on that in the second half, but it's kind of nice to know some of this going into the tale. And the only other thing I would really like is some mention or acknowledgement that Stark Enterprises or Stark Industries was just bombed. It did take a lot of damage, despite the fact the espionage elite failed to get the secrets they were after. There's still damage, and that's got to be, you know, in the process of repair, so on and so forth. And if this were the Daredevil issue in this crossover, okay, but we're still within Iron Man's book, and that's a plot point that kind of at least needs to be mentioned. But overall, to sum it up in a sentence, this issue sets the ball. So the ball's up in the air, we have an intriguing setup, and the main question we're left with in this cliffhanger is, will the ball get spiked? That's the question we're going to find out next week, when we find out if Nick Fury causes the end of the world, and we finally see the mystery of the Zodiac Key revealed, as we check out that rip in space. It's an all-out weird issue in this second chapter of this crossover as Iron Man comes to Daredevil in Daredevil number 73. And between now and next week, feel free to visit DaredevilPodcast.com, home of the show, where you can see show notes as well as images. 
and links to subscribe via iTunes, RSS, Stitcher, whatever your preference is. There is a handy contact form to drop the show a line, or if you choose to do so directly, the email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. If you like social media, find the show on facebook.com slash daredevilpodcast, or on Twitter, you find me personally at twitter.com slash daveweeder. So next week, Zodiac Key Weirdness. Until then, justice may be blind, my friends, but it can see in the dark. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.